Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Vey. This is episode 16. Visual Politics with Mark Reinhardt. Before I start, some housekeeping. I would love to hear your interpretation of Plato's Cave. You can leave me a voice message. It's really simple. You just click the link in the description, hit record, and just say whatever you want to say about Plato's allegory and hit send. Tell me your interpretation and any questions or comments about the episode so far. I might play your message in a future episode and respond to it. And thank you so much to those who support this independent educational project through Patreon, through making a one-time donation or leaving a review. And on YouTube, I created some shorter clips of episodes. I thought this might be a good idea because some episodes are quite long and you might want to get a taste of it before you dive into the full episode. So we're at episode 16 now and we have looked at many different ways of approaching Plato's cave. But have you noticed something? We've hardly discussed the allegory itself in the sense of the text that Plato wrote as part of his book, The Republic. And there's a reason for that, which we will get into in this episode. The reason has to do with the concept of performativity. Performativity, in short, means that you don't just look at what something means, but at what it does. Our guide today is political scientist Mark Reinhardt, who published an article called The Cave of Images, Understanding Visual Politics in and Through Plato's Republic. His article undercuts prevailing approaches to Plato while presenting the politics of vision and the visuality of politics in ways relevant to the current image environment, yet overlooked in much contemporary political science and theory. Plato's allegory has traditionally been interpreted as showing a contempt for images, for the mundane reality of everyday life and for politics in general. But Mark Reinhardt goes back to the text of the Republic to show that if we pay attention to its performative aspects, we get a completely different picture. After discussing his way of looking at Plato's allegory, we will look at what this means for images of racism and violence, like the murder of George Floyd in the United States and the tradition of Black Pete in the Netherlands. Mark Reinhardt teaches in both political science and American studies. His teaching interests range from ancient to contemporary political theory, as well as problems of democracy, public space, cultural analysis, race and slavery, and visual politics. His current research is shaped by a commitment to showing how political theory and political science can engage more fully with the visual domain. Okay, let's start. So you're a political scientist, right? That's 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 what it says on my uh, door. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Republic, where the cave appears, is about, uh, you can read it as a text about politics. And I can assume that if you do your political science education, you need to know about the past of politics. So you start with uh, Plato and what he thought. But you published a paper, which is for a large part about the Republic and Plato's cave. 
So what's, and I assume you're interested in, in current politics as well. So what's at stake for you there in looking at Plato's allegory and the Republic? So I guess the stake for me is this. Aside from, of course, it's an endlessly fascinating text. And as a political theorist, it's, you know, part of the repertoire, <laughs> uh, um, something I would teach, uh, you know, as one aspect of introducing people into the theoretical study of politics. But but well, well beyond that, and more specifically, I think the way I read the book, it's an inquiry in no small part into the intertwining of the visual and the political. And that's something of considerable interest to me because that intertwining is largely faced by political science as a discipline. So uh, as someone who has spent a fair amount of time writing in one way or another about visuality and claiming to do so as a political scientist or a political theorist, uh, it is interesting to me that while writing in a vastly simpler media environment, Plato took the visual much more seriously than the overwhelming preponderance of contemporary American, especially political scientists, even though we inhabit a complex media environment in which uh, denying the salience, the political salience, the political significance of the visual is practically preposterous. So so, so it's an interesting move, I suppose, within the internal economy of prestige and authority in the discipline to say, isn't this interesting that this sort of arch canonical text is more engaged with this still contemporary phenomenon in a way uh, than contemporary practitioners are. But 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 and, and there's some nice ironies there. But 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 also my interest is because I think there are genuine things to learn from attending to how the text entwines those matter. And there there are things to learn both about how the world works and about how traditions of discourse and protocols of reading are constructed. Because most people don't read the Republic in that way. You know, the way I want to talk about it goes against. I want to claim at least the overwhelming traditions of reception, which see Plato, insofar as they attend to the visual, see Plato, as, see the Republic as a manifesto of hostility to visuality. No. Yeah, so I guess it's good that now this is probably the 16th or 17th episode of the podcast. We start to explicitly discuss the <laughs> cave allegory. Maybe just as a as a starting point, I have here I have the Republic here. I think you have a copy too. Yep. I have the which one do you have? I have the Griffith translation. Okay, I have the Dover Twift edition. Okay. What if I just read you the back of the book, what it says about the public republic? And because that's probably the common way of re of doing it. Uh, and then uh, uh, go ahead, that's great. Yeah. Um, so this one is translated by Benjamin Joet. This celebrated philosophical work of the fourth century before Christ contemplates the elements of an ideal state serving as the forerunner for such other classics of political thought as Cicero's De Republica. I guess he stole that one. <laughs> uh, since St. Augustine's City of God and Thomas More's Utopia. The Republic concerns itself chiefly with the question, what is justice? as well as Plato's theory of ideas and his conception of the philosopher's role in society. 
To explore the latter, he invents the allegory of the cave to illustrate this notion that ordinary men are like philosophers in a cave, observing only the shadows of things, while philosophers are those who venture outside the cave and see things as they really are, and whose task it is to return to the cave and tell the truth about what they have seen. This dynamic metaphor expresses at once the eternal conflict between the world of the senses, uh, the cave, and the world of ideas, the world outside the cave, and the philosopher's role as mediator between the two. So that's a very traditional description, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it distills a lot. Yeah. Fairly economically. Um, I have a couple of responses that maybe a meta comment first. I think it's interesting that it this is episode 16 or whatever. <laughs> it tells us something about the cave and its philosophical history that something like that summary you read to me can kind of stand on its own outside of an engagement with the text and, and maybe appropriately given the power and economy of the cave as a trope. I mean, it's like one of the great, if not the great figure in the history of, 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 of philosophy and such figures travel and take on lives of their own. Uh, and, and, and so in some ways it's appropriate. And yet, and this brings us now directly to the passage that you read to me, I wanna say there are some interesting reading practices that go into that description. For instance, you could infer if you hadn't read the book that a book is the book were was is written by some narrator speaking as Plato, which of course mm -hmm. is not the case. You, yeah. you 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 would not know from that description that the book is a dialogue. You would not know that everything that is described as Plato's idea there is voiced by this character, Socrates, you know at once a real personage, but, but, but in this context, a literary character deployed by an author. And that the things that the character says are in various ways, ironized, juxtaposed, undercut, complicated, um, and most directly, uh, probably the reason we're talking about this is uh, my, for me that, that this allegory story um, by Socrates or whatever, whatever and, and even what we should call it. Should we call it an allegory? There's a whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? But, but set that aside. Uh, this account of the embodied and sensible domain as illusory and secondary and an immaterial, um, non-visual, ideal domain as more ontologically real and superior is presented to us through a series of images. Uh, um, and and if you do, if you go to the Greek, it's it's complicated about what's the best translation. But this is not a this is not. Um, this is not a shameless or or or, or, or a terribly bad one. It, what what Griffith has, it's one of the things I love about this translation. What Griffith has Socrates say when he's introducing the cave, is the the, the verb he uses picture. Mm -hmm. 
Picture human beings living in some sort of underground dwelling. Picture also along the length of the wall, you know, and then and, and at the end uh, of the first couple descriptions, Glaucon says, a strange picture. <laughs> right? In, in uh, my in my uh, translation, it says, um, and now I said, let me show you in a figure mm -hmm. how far our nature of uh, is enlightened or unenlightened. And this is very interesting. Then it says, behold. Behold. Okay. Explanation mark. Great. I mean, Human beings, which is nice. It's like a command. Behold. Yes. Yes. It is in the imperative mode. So it's it, like picture. Yes. Um, yeah. Not only uh, let me show you a picture, but picture this. Yes. You, so you as the reader, or I, I, in, he, so Socrates is speaking to Glaucon. Yeah. So in, if you take it literally, he is asking Glaucon to do something, namely to picture something. He is, and it's inevitable. Uh, if we are responding to the solicitations of the text, then we are picturing as readers. We are being invited, or even as you said, since we're reading over Glaucon's shoulder, as it were, right? We're, we are being <laughs> commanded. <laughs> to behold or to picture, to summon an image. So, so this is interesting uh, um, that, that a, a, and Socrates refers to himself at one moment in the Republic as quote unquote greedy for images. Mm -hmm. That this book that is, or this, and, and particular, this book that is renowned for its hostility to the visual and this passage, which is the moment that is sort of most famously presents a story of escaping embodied perception, proceeds not incidentally, but constitutively through acts of imaging. If you take the images out, there's almost nothing left. So that poses a textual perplexity. What should we make of this? Yeah. Um, I. Uh, uh... One of my friends is a philosophy teacher and he, of course, he teaches the cave. And one of the first things he does when explaining this is asking them to draw the cave. So reading the story and then, okay, just draw it. And if you look in, if you Google it, if you look on YouTube, you find pictures, uh, you find philosophy professors drawing on a whiteboard with schemas yes. and uh, everything like that. Lots of and, dual pictures, yeah. yeah. And then this story is about, supposedly about how we need to transcend uh, pictures and the images and, and the senses. And, and that, that kind of move, just so that, so that the complexity or the, you know, the limits of what I've been trying to say to you, so I acknowledge them, that kind of move, that move towards transcendence and the particular destination that one reaches, i.e. the forms, is a recurring motif in Plato's dialogues. It's not unique to this moment in the Republic. Um, and that's part of the reason that readers going all the way back uh, to Aristotle, right, treat this simply as a metaphysics held by Plato offered to us to accept and validate in which if we had the capacity, we would be prompted to 
practice dialectic and ascend to the forms ourselves. And yet, not only is the, if we attend to the text, is the journey qualified in various ways where Socrates continually stresses basically, well, that's how it seems to me, whether it's true or not, only a God can say, right? Yeah. Uh, not only is that the case, not only are his interactions with the ca other characters of a nature at various points that should, 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 should give us pause, but again, it, 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 this moment, the cave is an imaging apparatus, right? I mean, I would say the whole dialogue is a kind of machine for producing images from beginning to end, and 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 its its philosophizing cannot proceed without the images it generates. They're not decorative. They're not incidental. Again, they're constitutive, but nowhere is this most obvious than the cave, which is at once the the sort of the high point of, uh, uh, of animus towards the visual, casting figuratively the visual domain as one of bondage. And yet that one that, that not only commands Socrates interlocutors, but by extension us to perform acts of visualization. That's pretty interesting, I think. So you're saying it's not just... Um... Um, okay, so uh, Socrates speaking to Glaucon, um, he's like a teacher. So in his teaching, he uses um, a metaphor or an illustration because to help the student understand, you know, it's like uh, a picture this, it's like this and this and this. So uh, saying, oh, well, so um, Plato writing <laughs> truth, it's very complicated. Plato um it's not Plato speaking through Socrates, wanting to explain his theory of forms or, or making another point and saying, well, I could just make the point, which actually he, he does af right after describing the cave. He says, well, you could see um, uh, uh, the fire as the sun. And so like like in like uh, before they, they would tell, tell fables about stories of animals, they would tell the story. Uh, about why the turtle won the race with the hare, but right. then right after that they would explain you the meaning of the story. Uh, I think that would also be the close. So there would no be no um, room for you to make your own twist. Just to be clear, this is this is the meaning of the story. So what makes it um, what makes it something else than just a teaching device that that Socrates explains to Glaucon, okay, maybe if I explain it this way, you will get it more easy. And then I'll give you the picture of the cave. And then afterwards I tell you what it means. And then he, he makes another argument about politics, which we can speak about later, but. I guess I would say a couple different things. Um, you, first of all, it's not clear what the argument in a more rigorous sense of argument is if we take out the examples, if we take out the, the it, it, it's, it's, it's almost images all the way down, right? Um, um, 
Socrates tells us that if we don't have knowledge of the highest form of all, the form of the good, we're essentially just dreaming through life. We lack, we simply lack knowledge. And he tells us that we can only ascend to the good through the practice of this non-sensory form called dialectic. But he neither can show us, he, he acknowledges he cannot show us what dialectic is and that he can only, only figuratively represent the good. Yeah, he says that literally yeah? somewhere in another passage. Uh, I think Laukon asks him, can you show me? He says, no. I don't know what he says literally, but something like you wouldn't be able to understand um, it. Or yeah. so, <laughs> so, so, so this is a story about what would what philosophy would be like, right? So, so, so it's not as if so. So, so my first my first thought to you is is it's not as if he's giving us an example and telling us a story and then following it with the real thing. And now we're gonna understand it better. We never get the real thing. We get a disavowal of the capacity to deliver the real thing. Yeah. And there are various ways to respond to that. We could bring in the Phaedrus and say, well, it's, it's, it's a critique. It's because of the limits of writing. But of course, all we have is writing, right? Uh, 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 it's a little bit like the story about the visual. If 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 Plato is truly hostile to writing in the way that some of Socrates' remarks in the Phaedrus are, why does yeah. the man write so much? Um, um, and 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 what are we to make of a, what are we to make of the delivery of a message, on the unreliability of writing, uh, in the medium of writing, right? Uh, um, the the it's the, the what I want to say to you about the visual is part of the broader question I, I I quote my teacher Peter Eubin as pointing out that the the form of the Republic the literary form violates what the text itself says what Socrates says about proper literary form Socrates develops a literary taxonomy that 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 for, for which about which two things should be said one it nowhere names the kind of writing that the Republic itself is. You can't place the Republic in the taxonomy that Socrates develops first. And second, uh, you can place it among the classes of objects that are proscribed in this city that Socrates and his interlocutors are constructing. So interestingly, the ideal city, if we take it as an ideal, is one that would ban the very book we hold in our hands as we, as we encounter that ideal. Yeah. So, so there's something uh, vertiginous about. <laughs> so, about. We, so we assume that the Republic is Plato's philosophy and he chose that form because whatever reason, so that if we read the Republic, we will understand philosophy and uh, the Republic is about, again, it's, it's even more complex when you, it's uh, Socrates remembering or recounting yes. a conversation that he had the night before when he was on his way to um on his way back from from a, a religious festival and then um he stopped by some youngsters that want to speak with him 
and they they go to the house of of them and they they have these conversations with with different people and socrates recounts this happening the day before and some of the things they speak about are well what you just said like the form of the good and everything and uh there are different images different illustrations doing that and one of them the most famous one is the allegory of the cave as the the book the back cover of the book also says well, the famous allegory of the cave which is it's almost like um what's that movie the where you have a dream inside a dream inside a dream inception yeah inception exactly so the cave is features in um a book by plato about socrates remembering recounting something that a dialogue that happened the day before the dialogue in which he as one of the things asks his a conversation partner to picture the allegory of the cave which then has another meaning about philosophy uh so and then we just assume that this book that plato wrote is a philosophy book is the example of what they speak about but you're calling that into question if i'm correct i am i am and i'm i would add to, to your quite wonderful description i would add only two things uh the, the other twist or level is that in that conversation the evening before socrates and his interlocutors as uh, christina tarnopolsky uh has pointed out in an article are as she puts it they're playing the imaginary founders of an imaginary city oh, yeah. right they're yeah. they're conducting a little bit of a of a of a dramatic performance as it, as it were right so there's a thought exercise but the other thing i would add is is to go back to the very beginning as you did socrates is detained coming back from watching these religious festivals he's detained by people who literally grab him initially yeah. and there's a little bit of a struggle about whether he'll stay with them and they say we can overpower you and he says well what about if instead you persuade me uh uh and 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 there's a whole question asked about the relationship between force and persuasion. And that is followed when they when they hold their dialogue by the famous book one where Socrates sort of battles Thrasymachus, who says we all want to be tyrants. And everything that happens in this book is launched by Socrates' attempt at the invitation of Glaucon and his brother uh, Adamantus to show that Thrasymachus is wrong and that actually we want to be just. And so to, when we get to this nested story in the Republic, you know, here is the philosophy, when the nested story in the cave, here is the philosopher reaching truth, which is what confers upon him the power to rule. And it seems to me the question suffusing the book that gets edited out from the back copy that you read to me and edited out when we don't intend to the operations of the text is something like philosophy and tyranny what's the difference yeah right or or, or or is there a difference and 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 among the different and the difference is grounded in the philosopher's claim to knowledge and access to the real but those are the very things that are complicated by by paying attention to the figurative and image saturated character yeah. of the right so so that part is also about its uh philosophy and tyranny um some of the other themes are 
I guess, sophism and philosophy. Like if you uh, can convince someone, uh, we, we, we had this thought experiment before with um, speaking about science communication, which obviously is very important in our society. If you're a scientist and you have two options, one is a very convincing argument that would make people stop using fossil fuels or something. <laughs> Uh -huh. um but it's but you know it's not true <laughs> and the other one is the uh, you know the the let's say the truth as you see it but it won't be as effective in communication which one would you choose i think it's those type of dilemmas right or if you're yeah, yeah. justice you know um would you if you're not just but but you're seen as being just by other people or if you are just, but you're not seen as such, which one is, which one would you prefer? Well, and your stress uh, on the dilemma, which uh, to which I won't hazard an answer because uh, uh, it's a hard one, is 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 helpful to me here because. Uh, I guess for whatever it's worth, and I in, in the particular paper we're talking about, I, I I try not to stake a lot on claims about what quote unquote the Plato really thought on what 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 the biographical Plato aspired to, and try to just say, let's pay attention to the working, sometimes the performative workings of the text we have before us. But that said, Given the recurrence of this figure of the forms and these notions of certainty and and these sort of stigmatizations of the sensory and the embodied, I have to imagine that aspirations of for transcendence of those kinds, the kinds figured by things like the cave, were very powerful for Plato yeah. and the search for truth understood in that way was powerful for him. And yet, nonetheless, it seems to me that if we're attentive, we find all kinds of cautions, you know, which yeah. are not so much, I don't know, you know, insistences that we abandon those things, but, 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 but fundamental complications of the kind of story you get on the back and, and things that make us take sensation much more seriously. And to go back to the question you asked me at the beginning, which was, okay, you're, you're a political scientist. You presumably care about the political world. You know, why study this stuff? Uh, I spent a lot of time um, elsewhere in the paper trying to show just how entwined the political and the visual are for Plato. And then with the cave, the question becomes essentially, well, are they entwined because Plato devalues the one as much as the other, you know? Uh, sure, the philosophy is entwined with, uh, politics is entwined with the visual because both are unreal. And philosophy comes in to save the day, you know, ruling over both because it has access to the real, understood as the immaterial, the apolitical, <laughs> and, yeah. and the disembodied. Uh, and that's why the cave's visuality become so important because we can't even understand what's going on in that famous passage without using our senses. And we, we aren't good readers of it 
if we don't notice, as you and I were talking about a few moments ago, the injunctions or commands to picture, to behold, to look. Yeah, which are actions uh, that we're doing as readers. In yeah. response, I, I often, I, I, well, actually, when when reading your paper, I was thinking, oh, but wait, Plato. What was Plato in his day? He was uh, he was a teacher, um, and he wrote his text. And um, so, what he wrote his text? May, why did he write his text? We don't we don't really know. But I could imagine that he wrote it as a teaching tool. And you also point out that he gives some um, uh, hints in in the text that actually you know this is the, this is this. I'm giving you this as the start of a discussion. It's not the final word. So if I read the back offer of that that book, or it's like this is what Plato, Plato thought. This is a description of Plato's philosophy. But we don't know if you know good teachers don't tell you the answer right away. They say, well, hey, maybe read this and let's discuss it in class. What do you think? And maybe they put some things in there that you know they don't actually think, but they think, well, if I, if I do it in this way, it will stimulate some discussion and it might find some answers for themselves. And it seems to me that the first step in participating in that discussion is paying some attention to the operations of the, of, of the language we have before us. Yeah. And, and seeing again, not only what, what does, not only what is this, this or that character say but what does the text do yeah so then we get to okay so i'm thinking how to then we get to performativity i'm thinking we we try we we kind of complicated things now yeah i'm yep. trying to okay let's I, i'm trying to find the structure i i found if we look at the plato's allegory of the cave which is a text which we can read uh, or you can listen in the first episode, have it read to you, which is very nice. How can you see that? And I thought about five different ways and maybe I, I list them and then we can discuss sure. further. So the first is as an image. So he asks you to picture something and you picture it. You picture the prisoners, you picture the fire. So it's almost like watching a movie. So that's that's the you know the and and there have been movies made uh, with inspired by Plato's cave. So it's almost like maybe if if he would be living now, he would be making a movie. Then the second is as an allegory or a story or a fable or something like that, where he says, "Well, I'm telling you this because I want to make a point." And right after the story, he makes a point. What does it mean? So I'm telling you a story. What does it mean? And in People after Plato have debated the, the allegory of the cave in, in this podcast. We do it as well. Yeah. But we kind of, you know, um, kind of abduct it. You can gloss over details and everything. But that's like a story that means something. Then the third one is uh, that it's part of the Republic and it's part of an argument. And he's making an argument about. Like you said, they're playing this game where they're imagining the, the ideal city, but they're doing it so they uh, can get insight into the soul. And the point that they're making right afterwards is that the ideal ruler for the city would be that person that has gone outside the cave 
and come back into it. And uh, he doesn't get any recognition. And he's also not interested in the power there. But um, yeah, uh, out of service, that would be the ideal person, the philosopher king who's not interested in power, who doesn't want to be a ruler, to be the ideal politician. So it's part of a, a, rhetor a rhetorical uh, device to construct an argument to convince, maybe make a political argument. Then the fourth one is that, so just the, the ones we had is like, it's an image. The second one is it's an image of captivity to image uh, of our captivity mm -hmm. to images yeah. as you, I'm just quoting some things from your uh, paper. The third one, uh, maybe it's like a rhetorical device, but you could also say maybe it's a theory, maybe it's part of a political theory. And the fourth one is that it's, uh, you say it's also a captivating image in, I mean, we're, we're talking about it now in, in a right. podcast You're in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> and many people have, have written about it. And, and maybe that's something to get into is that people have been very critical of it as well saying that, yeah, it's like um, this demonization of images. This, yeah. this uh, It has been associated with Christianity of um, uh, kind of a contempt for, for the everyday life. Yes. Um, and the heaven is what it is all about. And then just to finish it, the fifth one is how you look at it as kind of a performative image, a meta picture. Is that kind? Is that kind of those five? Do I are, are some of them the same, or do we need more? Uh, hmm. Uh, thinking on my feet, I'm not positive. That that that's a pretty that we, that's a lot to work with. I don't think it's too redundant, and I um um. I mean, the only thing I'd add is we could think about, in some ways, how those different stories interact. So. So insofar as say it's a story about politics, then it might matter its performativity, it's being a meta image, meta picture might matter. It might, yeah. might they, they, those, two, th those two things might speak to each other in interesting ways, but um, because if we, you know, the contempt that's attributed to Plato, the abstraction from the embodied and the material, and however much philosophers are supposed to not want power, the, the vast political power <laughs> given to the philosopher by this story, those things all interact, right? It's precisely because the philosopher can escape the everyday and the embodied, that the philosopher becomes entitled to rule. Um, so it therefore matters to pay attention to whether that escape is complicated by the story and whether there's another picture of philosophy available to us here or another picture of the relationship between politics and philosophy given us here. And attending to the performative aspects I think helps, well, help, helps us in a couple of ways. It, it, it helps us to go way back to your original question, which we might at some point 
you know, return to at, at more length, it helps us think about the present insofar as it gives us a way, you know, not uniquely, but a helpful way of understanding the ways the visual and the political shape each other. But it's helpful in our narrow sense of being preoccupied at the moment with the text in the sense of it performs a different relationship to politics than the one that the description on the back of the book offers us. Yeah, and then, then you're looking at what what is the not not just what does the text mean, but what is it doing? So, and again, I think what it's doing in a lot of the uh, in the particular paper that you read, I spent quite some time talking about and and drawing on other people, Danielle Allen among others, who have who have engaged this. Uh, uh, there's a there are some really important moments that show the political world of Plato's day as a regime that solicits that 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 is consolidated that operates by soliciting soliciting certain ways of looking it cultivates certain habits of looking particularly around death and punishment for instance it puts certain kinds of spectacles on display in order to shape seeing uh, and and ways of looking shape visceral political responses to fundamental issues of for instance crime and punishment so 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 in a book that that has already shown that how we see is both an artifact and a contributing element like in a sort of dialectical relationship of the making of political order, right? When we show that that visual regimes and political regimes are intertwining and mutually shaping each other, it then matters whether the dialogue is in the cave telling us, oh, that's fine because we're gonna get outside of all of that. Or whether philosophy itself is performatively refigured as bound to earthly perception, forced to be in the cave. I mean, uh, this may be too esoteric, and we can, we can, you can stop me if it is. It, you know, one of the questions that, that analytic philosophers who tend not to pay attention to the kind of performative operations, I think, what they, what they sometimes struggle with the Republic is over is, well, why does the philosopher come back? Yeah. Life's pretty good up there with the forms. Why would you come back? And, and and there's a there's a related there's a related puzzle of philosopher king, is that one jobs or two? Because in the city everybody's supposed to do one job. So how do you hold those? How how does that hyphen between philosopher and yeah. king, you know, suture these two things together? And if you pay attention to the formal structure of the arguments in the way an analytic philosopher would, they're not very good. You know, the philosopher king comes back because it's good for the community, but that wasn't really the deal. The whole deal that started the Republic is you were supposed to show that being just was better for you. That's the challenge to show, to answer Thrasymachus. Socrates is given the task of showing that justice is better for us, right? Yeah. And, 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 and it's, so, 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 so there are ways in which 
taken as a completely uncomplicated, completely unironic, completely sincere, straightforward argument, the argument fails at various levels. But if we pay attention to the figurative and the performative, in some ways it makes more sense. I mean, I, I, as you know, I talk about how, and this is not unique to me, a lot of political theorists have in sort of small ways talked about this and the classicists, uh, Andrea Wilson Nightingale has a wonderful book uh, uh, that spends a lot of time on this. Plato is troping a, to his readers, very familiar centuries old empirical practice of theoria as a journey where people go and see festivals and come back and report on them. Yeah. As you mentioned, Socrates is off to see a festival at the beginning of the book. And now we get in the cave. If, if the cave is properly called an allegory, it's an allegory of that or a transfiguration of that journey where people who were emissaries came back and gave reports that could be sort of illuminating or even uh, in the way ethnography can be estranging. And it seems to me that that's what journal, that's what the journey of the cave does to the, to the reader. It, it, it estranges everyday political life. But I'm not sure it actually calls on us to simply transcend or have contempt for those things, particularly given how constitutive picturing or beholding is to that whole journey. Yeah. Yeah, that was what you just said was one of the things I learned. There was a journey that if readers in Plato's time would recognize this as, as kind of a cultural practice, right? Going. Yeah. Uh, maybe now it would be like a gap year or something. <laughs> you go, you go somewhere, you travel, and then you come back, and then you uh, maybe uh, had an uh, insight or something. And it's called theory. Theory. Yeah, the, right? the, the 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 theoros is the individual, right? Yeah. The, uh, the theoria is the is the is the which which is tied. You know, the word for theory is tied up with all kinds of words involving beholding or looking at or spectating. Right, uh, spectacle and theory have uh, in English, like basically, you know, the early early meaning of the word theory in English uh, uh, is looking at a spectacle, you know. Um, so, so the, yeah, so this would have this would this is this is what's being troped in that journey, and and even in the in the laws. One of the many things that gets regulated in Plato's laws is the office of the theoros, yeah. like an official office of the city that comes under certain certain regulations in that that particular imaginative yeah. exercise in the laws. Well, one thing that is that is really um, so the the episode before this uh, we spoke about Bernard Stiegler who became a philosopher when he was incarcerated in prison and he wrote about that uh, he I think he uses the image of a flying fish that you're being taken out of your um, environment your natural environment and then uh, yeah you can so that could almost be Plato's cave so you're taken out of your daily life I guess, you know, like people can meditate or they can go on a retreat or they can go traveling or do something. You get an insight, but you take this insight back into your daily life and it somehow enriches your daily life. But then the point that Stiegler makes is that um, those are also tech. He was in a prison cell, which is also uh, an architecture. 
that constrains you in certain ways and it enables you in other ways because he had a lot of time to read. Um, so um, the, and, and going, you know, going to another country to witness a spectacle is just what are you witnessing is something that for another culture is everyday life. But and for you, I, it's just, sorry, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I was just to say that the, 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 the one difference between a gap year is that at least in the particular subgenre that gets called civic theoria, the spectator was obliged to deliver a report upon returning. So it's not just a personal growth experience, it's 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 observation and yeah. then and then report. Uh, which, you know, which is uh what with with unhappy results, what 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 the figure in Plato's cave does, right? Because then they say, oh, if if he if they don't report, they actually try to kill him, right? They don't appreciate the report, which is another interesting ingredient because. You say, I think you say it yourself, or you quote someone, the Plato's cave is a it's a crime scene. Yeah. Because the the in the you know, Socrates was already put to death in, you know, and he's the he's the one that so that's another dimension where Socrates is telling something, you to imagine something, but Plato is using Socrates as a figure, but there's also the real Socrates who was um put to death. Put to death by his fellow citizens yes yeah uh, for, for for the reports that he gave them of the things that he had thought about yeah, yeah. So, so that it's you know it's both adds 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 to the sort of pathos of the scene but 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 also maybe if we think about that that social practice that existed at that time of theoria as travel and report uh with the potential to estrange via reportage there is there should be for a reader it's certainly a Plato's day who 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 recognizes that irony or that connection, there should be an estranging aspect to yeah. that, you know. Um, all of which would be mere uh I don't mean this dismissively, but 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 not more than textual commentary on a yeah. canonical text, were it not that for me it's useful to think with Plato in the world today about again about the entwining of the visual and the political yeah because the one of the ways uh, plato was taken up was in a critical way by hannah arendt and and by others saying uh this is like a symbolizes kind of the contempt i don't know if they they blame plato for it but you know the kind of way it has been interpreted as uh the, the truth and everything that's good is has nothing to do with everyday life and the embodied and the visual. And someone like Hannah Arendt wants to really look at the city and the politics and, the, and Adorno and other people like that. Just look what's actually going on here. Um, so do you think, do you, do you agree with that assessment that, that at least if you look at one of your critiques is that political theory today doesn't take the visual as seriously as it should is that i wouldn't say to blame on plato because you go back to plato to say that maybe plato wasn't doing that but how plato has been interpreted so i i, I guess a couple things come to mind 
in response to your question. You know, one thing we haven't talked a lot about is sort of Plato slash Platonism. You know, the back of the book is an excellent account of various currents of Platonism. Yeah. You know? And and Arendt's story about philosophical contempt for politics is a great story. That's an amazing piece, that piece of hers. And it captures, I think, profoundly something about the aspiration to subject the contingency and turbulence of political life to some kind of transcendent norm or standard. That is real. I mean, that, that impulse is real and powerful and I think problematic in ways that she articulates. So I'm very sympathetic to that as a critique of a certain kind of political philosophy that treats politics as sort of applied ethics and ethics as kind of uh, a fuzzy form of sort of mathematical or logical reasoning. You know, I, I, I think there are, I mean, there's, uh, this is controversial claim. I would say someone like John Rawls, for instance, some of the limits of his project, I think, in, in the theory of justice, for instance, can be captured that much, much legal philosophy can be captured by that, I think. Um, um, so just to, to kind of make this accessible, is it too simple to say that this is a critique on thinking you can just come up with a theory of justice or a theory of politics and then apply that and that's it if you have the good theory if you have the right theory and that the theory isn't necessarily rooted what 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 as in the allegory uh understood on without complication or countervailing forces one escapes the political finds the ideal establishes yeah. the ideal and then brings it down and 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 and, and, and applies it you yeah, know, but in uh, order, but in order to do that, you go, you transcend the, you, transcend. you go outside of the cave and you see the cave from a distance. You see what's yeah. going on. So you are the one that looks from this God's eye perspective, yeah, at the situation in the world, and you come back and you say, well, we should have uh, a democracy, or we should uh, have like this or that. Yeah. So so yes. So that that so I think she captured that 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 is a. You know, her claim is that much of the tradition of quote unquote Western political thought can be seen as doing something like that and as being animated by anxiety about, if not hostility to, or contempt for everyday politics. Yeah. I, I think there is some validity to that. Um, however, the other thing I would say in response to your question is that I don't think, I, I think there's a way in which Plato's own or the Republic's own sort of demonstrations of the intertwining of visual and political phenomena points towards forms of engagement that are very different from what we were just talking about. And that, and that to bring it now back to contemporary political science, that, 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 you know, it's funny because camp practical political operatives in our uh, 
fairly unfortunate uh, and limited party system here in the United States, they spend lots of time thinking about visuals and displays. And, and you know, when, when, when people are, are, are looking as ordinary citizens, it's sort of obvious and banal that, that images and imaging and um, graphics all shape, say, you know, the struggles of campaigns and so forth. But, but it's only in very narrow or limited ways that political science as a discipline thinks about that kind of thing. And it really doesn't think about, you know, how regimes structure ways of seeing or how historically sedimented ways of seeing uh, shape everyday interactions. And, 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 I, and two qualifications that it's not as if nobody does this, but, but, but I don't think it's a significant part of, of the discipline. And secondly, not so much a qualification as example. So this is less abstract. Let's think about race for a minute. You know, let's let let's think about how I mean how 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 race comes to be, in part as a organized way of seeing bodies. It, it's not that race is only a visual artifact, but race is partly a visual artifact. And think about even more concretely just how say white people and black people encounter each other in day-to-day -day life in all kinds of contexts uh, in societies like yours or mine. Uh, they encounter each other with all kinds of perceptions and affects that are shaped in part by habituated ways of seeing, even as those ways of seeing are shaped by values and stories and and you know political structures and all kinds of things and that's that's a it's it's not just an abstraction that's a really visceral part of how we move through the world but it's not one and it's one that obviously the field of visual studies attends to uh, uh, with great detail it's not one that's a big part of of political science or political theory I just want to mark that when you say politics you're not only thinking about the government. I am no. I mean, I am thinking about the government, but by no means I'm thinking about power, who has it, how it's exercised, how it shapes us. So I want to think about politics in the most expansive way here, which I want to say the Republic invites us to do, you know, thinking about everything from the whole of the regime, right? What is... Um... I just have to think about. I'm going. I want to ask you uh, what is politics, but I just have to think about this. Uh, sorry, the 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 new um, for the uh, Supreme Court, the new um, how do you say it, candidate that is being interviewed now? What's her name? Nominee, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah, she 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 got this question. I think it was yesterday or something. Can you define woman? Um, and I don't know if this is going anywhere. I was just, uh, that, that was no. just interesting for me that can you I define mean, woman? And she said, ask a biologist. And then <laughs> she got reactions saying that it's good. It's better than give, trying to give a definition of 
woman, but she, she also has the suggestion that a biologist would know that. Uh, this was just all a segue into asking you about what is politics. Can you define okay, politics? Okay, look, <laughs> let, let's pause for a minute on uh, Judge Brown. Uh, here's the subtext. I don't know if this is obvious outside of the US. The, here's what the question really was saying. Are you willing to say on the record that a woman is someone born with a vagina and not a trans woman? That's what the question was. Yeah. So, and that's why she doesn't want to answer. I mean, apart from the fact that it's hard, she she was that 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 was the point, or or else it was you know it was some combination of we'd like you to say, or we know you won't, and want to and want to complain that you won't say that it's uh, a person born with a vagina, and we'd also like you to say that it's a fetus who can't be aborted. That was the other. That was the other thing. So yeah, to say that that was not a uh, a question born of philosophical curiosity would be a gross understatement. Uh, that's allowed me to stall in answering your extraordinarily difficult question. And I and I guess I want to say a difference between being a student of politics and being a student of biology or chemistry or whatever is that there is no non-controversial answer to the question that you asked me. I mean, I'm going to give you some answers, but politics is an essentially contested concept, right? And 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 there is no neutral stance on it, and there are stakes in how we answer it. Um, so, so let's. So the answer, whatever answer you give to the question, what is politics, will be political. Political, yes. I mean, however, however, however dizzying it is to say that, I want to say yes. So let's take a few really kind of I classic uh, answers, most of which I want to say have a significant truth or insight into them. There is in American political science of mid 20th century, a couple that are worth quoting. One is the study of who gets what, when, and how, all right? The other is, quote unquote, the authoritative allocation of values, which in some weird way echoes Aristotle sort of saying that politics is the sovereign art, the one that puts all the other ones in its place, right? There's some kind of pervasive, if maybe vulgarized sense uh, in the wake of Foucault, especially that politics is operating wherever we find power. And, and if we're operating in the wake of Foucault, we find power virtually everywhere. There's Ranciere's uh, sense that politics involves what he calls, uh, and although this is very limited and also a little esoteric, uh, I, I like it as a piece of any way we think about politics. What he calls, uh, politics involves what he calls the part that has no part, right? That, po that politics involves what can't be counted by the census. What's not a merely demographic category because the, the prime political moment for him is when we unsettle or change the terms with which we're given. So that when say, you know, slaves revolt and struggle to gain the power and recognition of full personhood, or when women resignify their status as natural non-citizens through struggle, that's a fundamental moment of politics. Yeah, so also the, the discussion about if, if a, a trans person 
it's a yeah. woman or not would be in that line yeah yeah so that's the 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 it's the 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 hostile questioners of judge brown were in Ronciere's terms ask asking her to do some policing uh and to refuse to make a political <laughs> you know to to recognize the politics of the moment which is a shift in who belongs in women in in the category of women and what that category means yeah. that, that's a fundamental political moment so i want to say all those things i just said are true and i want to say that visuality is entangled with all of them not that it's the whole of them not that it's the only thing but that but that studying images imaging media mediation is relevant to all of these things is is a part of all of those things yeah i think uh, i wasn't just thinking about that example of the the republican who asked that question probably we have this now in the netherlands too that people in the where wherever the politician speaks they record clips for their website so i think this was also probably a strategic moment to create a clip which could be played on Fox News. Yeah, everybody knows that um, everybody knows that Judge Brown will be confirmed. Yeah. So this is this is entirely and it's why. Uh, so it's a spectacle as well. Yes, yes. Uh, I want to say, by the way, uh, one of the things that I take from the line of thinking I've been doing with Plato as I sort of try to extend it into the present is a skepticism of the idiom of spectacle, particularly in its sort of Guy Debord form um, as something that echoes the sort of back of the ver book version of Plato's cave or one that reenacts it in a sense one that without the, the the ironies and the counter pressures reenacts a kind of anxiety about or hostility to visual display. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's like something spectacle is for the masses. Right. Uh, you can orchestrate it. You can uh, kind of, yeah, and literally that, orchestrate, design your visual politics and people will receive that and they will be kind of brainwashed because Yes. The image says more than a thousand words and it will be subconscious and that's a way uh, yeah it's a whole yeah. art to do that and to be clear we live in a we live in a vastly unequal media environment you know in which even the supposedly more democratic or participatory forms of say social media are of course uh fundamentally driven by algorithms that are written uh, to advance the interests of the corporations that operate the platforms and are, are and are largely not understood by people who use them. So sure, there are in such an unequal media landscape coordinated campaigns. Uh, those coordinated campaigns can be uh, effective as well as pernicious. But uh, I think often in the discourse of spectacle, 
is something like that idea we find articulated in the story of the cave, even if on my account complicated by how the story unfolds, we find in the discourse of spectacle, uh, something like that sense that, 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 that the show is a prison, that, that the image is both unreal and, 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 and entrapping, that the one who watches is passive. Um, uh, and a dupe. And um, I don't find that the most helpful way for understanding the media environment that we live in. Um, I think I think in a in an if you accept my premise that the political and visual are isn't are fundamentally entangled, and if you accept as I think virtually everybody, does that our media environment is more complex, uh, you know, the vast preponderance of, of images ever made in the world have been produced in the last few years, right? Yeah. Um, um, I don't think an idiom that sees spectating as chained passivity is very helpful to us for navigating that, for making sense of the forms of struggle that can unfold. Yeah. yeah, and I always think the, 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 the fact that Plato was speaking about this already with, uh, without having cinemas or I guess they, they had uh, amphitheaters, but that was about it. I mean, what is the visual? It's not, I think it would be, we, you could say what, what is now, what, what is really different is, is the screens. We have so many screens. But then again, what is a screen? Um, if you, I, sh I talk with a neurologist already, I should, uh, a neuroscientist should speak about it as well. I mean, what is a screen? Uh, everything is a screen. If you, if you open, if you, it, of course you have to get into what is a screen, but if you, if you take Plato's allegory, one way of say, saying it is that the way, if you wake up and you go into nature, which we maybe see as you, you go outside of technology, you go outside of politics, you go outside of uh, everything and you go into nature, but you're still looking around you. It's still um, a screen. So um, it's, it's, I mean, aren't those, I guess that's, that's my question. Aren't those images as well? If I look at the tree and what is so different between the images, I mean, there's a difference between the image coming at the computer looking right now, but yeah, sorry, I mean, this is a very long question. <laughs> the, the, the ubiquity of screens that you were just characterizing, I think is really a distinctive, you know, the, the tree may be an image uh, uh, and the cave may be a screen. Uh, Tom Mitchell has a great paper from some years ago called, I think it's called Screen Theory, where, he, you know, he, he starts he starts with the republic as as a theory of the screen, but 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 the ubiquity of screens like I'm your 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 listeners won't see that I'm holding up my my cell phone which is never of course more than a few inches away from me it's it's more prosthesis than a because they don't have a screen <laughs> they're walking in the park or screen uh, um, that's that's um, one of my my uh, that's what I thought about uh, I mean we're seeing each other on Zoom right. Right. And I, I could record this and put this on, on YouTube, but, uh, and some people have suggested that, but I thought 
why would I? It's if I would do that, I would give people a place to look. That's how I see it, and they would look at our faces, which could be very interesting. But now I think people are maybe listening not so to much. <laughs> yeah, they they have to look. You they can still look at the screen, but they can also look somewhere else, and they can walk in the forest or something like that. And if we we may have been too abstract to do this, but if as if if like Socrates at various points, we were to be elaborate in describing images in our conversation, then your listeners would be able to summon pictures in their minds. Mm -hmm. And and so, but 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 anyway, to 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 to, to return to what um, I think is one entailment or consequence of of looking at the Republic in this way, again, because you partly said, well, why would, why go back? I think it can help give one reasons to harbor skepticism about often that kind of casual way spectacle is used as a term of dismissal. To, it helps you unpack what's going on. And you can see it in commentary on politics. You can see it in the discourse of uh, uh, art history, you know, the art history of the 20th century, the sort of whole uh, for people who, for people listening to you who, who are interested in, in the scholarly, you know, practice of art history in the October group, in the, the sort of canonical book, at least in English now on modern, modern art and afterward, the book called Art Since 1900, the word spectacle functions in that book as a term of complete sort of dismissal without any kind of real analytic content, but, 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 but animated by a kind of anxiety that I think you find in people like Guy Debord and that I think Plato helps us read at least as I want to unpack and get some distance on. Because I think if we wanna understand what gets called spectacles, we have to understand them as potential sites of struggle in which people who watch may exercise agency and respond differently. And since you and I discussed talking about a couple of contemporary images, this might be an interesting time or way of moment to go. For sure, yeah. I I, I just keep thinking, okay, I'll just bring it up. Um, it's a Dutch tradition called um, Black Pete. Have you heard of it? I don't think okay. so. Tell me a little. Okay, so people know uh, Santa Claus, uh, yeah. but I think Santa Claus is coming come from what in in holland we call it sinterklaas kind of looks the same we have christmas but on the 5th of december we also have sinterklaas and sinterklaas is a bishop or was a bishop uh, he has uh, well he looks like a lot like santa claus and he has a helper and this helper is black pete and black pete is black and if you look at um uh black images pete really black or is black peter white person in blackface or? yes a white person in blackface exactly ah. yeah and uh, if you look back in the tradition i think the tradition came from like wodan or something like the or, or northern like swedish and northern uh, vikings uh, um, 
But if you look not so long back, uh, Black Pete was like a person in blackface with with red lips and big gold earrings and uh, um, well, um, like a black uh, caricature of a black person. So now over the last, um, I think, 10 years or five years, there's a debate in Holland where people are saying, some people are saying Black Pete is racist. And there's a whole other group of people who are saying, no, Black Pete is not racist, it's tradition. And- um, That's really non sequitur, it seems to me, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's not, um, Black Pete is not, so the figure Black Pete is not a black person, but he's black because he goes down the chimney to bring to to put the presents there in the shoes, and that's why he's black. And uh, now people have tried to propose alternatives. So now Black Pete slowly is kind of disappearing. And bear in mind, this is a children's holiday. So I think children until I hope they don't listen to this podcast, but they believe until my, I don't know five, six, seven. So if you wouldn't do it for a few years, you can just change the story. Basically, that's it. You can just change the story and say, well, this is Pete and he and he has all different kinds of colors. That's what they're doing now. So you have on the one hand, the people, um, also black people, many people in Holland are from Suriname originally, or just uh, yeah, are black. And they have this memory of being called names, being called black Pete in school. Uh, on the other hand, you have like the more right-wing party or the conservatives that are saying, no, it's not racist. Um, it's a tradition and they want to take away our tradition. So there's this huge debate. And I was just thinking about like this. It's all about, it's visual. It's about uh, painting your face, but people taking offense to this practice. And I always have the feeling it's a children's holiday. Um, so there must be something else that is like being battled over here that is not about actually Black Pete or anything like that, but something about race, about visuality. What's the way of seeing that children are being inculcated into? It seems to me from your description to be the site of the struggle. And I'm, I, I, I would laugh, except it's so familiar from analogous debates in the United States at the defense that it, the, the, I think I'm quoting you correctly. It's it's not racist, it's tradition, as if those yeah. two things were mutually exclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in fact, they're more likely to be to, to, to be one and the same, right? I mean, so the interesting thing for for is is the investments people have, right? The emotional, the affective, yeah. the psychic investments they have. And they're, they're I, saying uh, they um, uh, sorry, I'm translating from Dutch, but the, what they're saying is they're already taking away everything from us. Now they yeah. also want to take away Black Pete. So, so, so this is the, that is almost the sort of perfect distilled generic expression of white grievance politics yeah. in, in the rich North Atlantic societies, right? They're taking it all away. You know that 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 that's that is the basis of that that is or that's the form of they you know are robbing us of our entitlement. But but I think it matters that in this particular instance the entitlement is to a visual practice, and and one difference 
so 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 I'm just going by your description. I conjured an image in my mind because I'm not sure I've ever seen a picture of Black Pete other than the verbal one you painted for I'm, me. I'm, I'm gonna but, uh, the the picture is uh, a white man with a beard sitting on a, a white horse uh, with next to him uh, a black faced person with a bag over his shoulder walking next to him. <laughs> Well, what I what I also heard from you, and correct me if this is if this is wrong or too polemical, was that various elements of racial caricature were part of this, so that lips yeah. and so which 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 are not easily explained by soot and chimneys as a side observation, right? So this brings it into the family of American blackface. Mm. Right? And yeah. the interesting thing there, I mean, the obvious thing once you say the lips and all of that is it's a it's a it's an image it's a it's a denigrating image of racial caricature which has political forces behind it and political consequences to it obviously and not least for children which is why the stakes are high but the more interesting part particularly by analogy with american blackface is not just what the image provides but what the practice allows, which is to say, what what's in it for white people to black themselves up in this way, right? And in American, I mean, uh, you may or may not know, mass culture in the United States was invented pretty much through the medium of blackface, the first just wildly popular, almost industrialized form of um, cultural production in the 19th century was blackface minstrelsy. Uh, uh, um, and and the runaway success novel of the mid 19th century was Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a kind of anti-slavery form of blackface performance. And and white people, uh, and and for me the great work on this is by the late Michael Rogan. White people blacking themselves up gave themselves access to a kind of libidinal freedom that they projected onto Black people, even while denigrating and lampooning them in the performance. So there was something in it for them. It functioned not only as a means of stigmatization, but but it, it, it offered pleasures and opportunities to white people that were unavailable to them by other means. And again, it was it was enormously popular. Uh, it was it made it made vast quantities of money. So so simply the act of blacking up the white face allowed pleasures, feelings, um, thoughts, experiences that were not available otherwise. And that tells us something both uh, about the power of you know visual alteration and also the construction of race so 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 it's not surprising i mean uh it's slightly surprising to me that the debate is as recent as you say it is in the yeah. netherlands uh, well um, it's being um so there's a transition so uh every year they they change it a little bit for instance there's the uh, like um uh, fic fictive news uh, program about uh, Sinterklaas coming and he's in the boat and is he coming and there's always some adventure 
and every year they they change it uh, a little bit but the other part of it so the one part of it is that it's an i totally get why it's such an offensive practice the other part of it is that um you can capitalize on it politically which maybe has something to do in another episode with daniel ross we we, we talked about also scapegoating mm -hmm. so um saying then people who do this are racist is is something else because if you translate it as well they have racist intentions which is then by political parties taken as saying well you know you you this innocent children's party and they're calling you a racist uh so you see so there's all this political uh capitalize capitalization i don't know if that's the word yeah, yeah. yes so that also intensifies uh, uh, the debate around it. And it, yeah, it's on the basis. So that's that's just the example I could think of in my own country of how race and visuality uh, plays a role. But that's a way in which it's about an image that we are, it's, it's also disappearing and that we don't want to see anymore. But we could also discuss, um, so the images that we do see uh, about race and that they are changing something. You know, just we, we yeah we and we could transition to some American images, for instance. But but the 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 capitalization you talked about, I think, does mark an important limit to some of the things I've said to you, which by which I mean. So look, if 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 Black Pete goes away, it's not as if the fundamental issues of race in the Netherlands will thus have been solved, right? Mm -hmm. And so and 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 denouncing denouncing the participants in that as if you come from a certain kind of left or cosmopolitan or intellectual milieu, denouncing those who participate in that tradition is very easy. You know, and as a good way to establish your your virtue or your you know your standing on the side of justice and progress without doing a whole lot, and 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 yet I do think it is um, it is it is revealing that that the defense of tradition takes the form of again as you just quoting you back that that now they even want to take this away. I mean, it, it's revealing something about the structure of white grievance, grievance yeah. politics, but we could make it go away and fundamental problems would, would change. So it, it's not as if my proposition is that the, you know, uh, all we need to do is tidy up the visual and all will be well. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. visual is an important medium or terrain of struggle in particularly in a time like ours, although even in, even in Plato's Plato's day, but but you know the American example that you and I talked about a little bit uh, in the prelude to doing this interview were, for instance, the image of Colin Kaepernick uh, kneeling, uh, American football player, quarterback at the time, which is the most important position in American football for European listeners. I don't really watch football, but 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 even I know this. And uh, refusing to stand for the national anthem, uh, kneeling in protest to problems of race and empire in the United States, 
and generating a fair amount of support, but also unleashing fury. Um, uh, fury that I think takes a form not wholly dissimilar to now they're trying to take even this from us. Uh, uh, um, and uh, seems to have led to his not being employable mm. in, in professional football. Uh, uh, people I know who know much more about football than, than I do, some of them say, well, his, 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 he was past his peak, his career had, had limits, but, 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 but it is, but, but, but I think nonetheless surprising that no team would, no team would sign him to play uh, because of the rage from the more conservative of white spectators uh, over this. But, but, but my proposition would be that one of the most transformative or mobilizing images of recent times, which is the image of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who murdered George Floyd uh, by, by kneeling on his neck for nine minutes until he was as asphyxiated, uh, that that image, both the video that was taken by cell phone, yeah. you know, you, you, ubiquitous screens, these screens are two ways. So they, they not only present, they capture. And that's a really important part of our, of our visual environment now, that both the videos, but even the still image of, of Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, which kind of rhymed with or echoed the image of Colin Kaepernick kneeling on the field, one protesting in the name of injustice against Black people, another committing murder by kneeling, by literally holding down the body of a Black man. That latter image, and I think in part, by no means only, but, 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 but among other things, through its visual echo or resonance, with the emancipatory image of, of uh, Kaepernick was uh, massively mobilizing. Um, I mean, the, there, there are many different reasons why the US and, and other places saw uh, an almost unprecedented outpouring of mass protest in the summer of 2020 about racial justice. Uh, and we could, you know, we could, we could name some, you know, the, the the experience of, of COVID and its dislocations, the sequence of murders in the United States, high profile murders of, of black people by American police officers, uh, the presidency of Donald Trump, um, et cetera. But uh, that it was Floyd's death that became the proximate inspiration for protest of that scale. I think is partly due to its visual mediation and the particular form that image took. And that tells us something about the power of images to condense and reveal, as well as to inflame and to mobilize. And what, what makes this particular image so powerful? Because I was thinking from kneeling, uh, there was another Dutch story is that we had the call, uh, the king used to ride once a day in the golden carriage. Uh, but there were some, the, the, which was very old from colonial times, 
there are some images of not necessarily black people i don't know but people from like say exotic uh people for for yeah. the netherlands perspective uh offering gifts and kneeling as well and that one that that golden carriage is now in the museum but again it was a little bit of a controversy about can you still do that or not mm -hmm. but their kneeling is um saying well you can say kneeling can be a sign of respect if you knew i don't know you knew for an altar or something right you knew for the king but right. it's also of course connected to slavery and being forced to kneel to uh, a person that is uh you know higher in power than you so i'm trying to make the connection between the, the practice of kneeling from Colin Kopernik is that's that's the when I saw that on the news I didn't get it because I thought isn't kneeling because it was during the national anthem right and they were saying like Donald Trump and other people were saying he's disrespecting the national anthem and the flag and the the, the people who died in the wars fighting but I thought isn't kneeling a sign of respect so I mean I don't know if this is too abstruse or abstract, but it it raises questions about how how political signification works. So I, I don't know that there's an intrinsic meaning to kneeling. I mean, let me let me stop myself and say, look, I think I think there's a lot of contingency to how things get taken up. And it's often easy to imagine how they could have been taken up otherwise. And I'm never, even when saying, hey, I think it's really interesting the way I think it's relevant how the images of Kaepernick and Derek Chauvin sort of rhymed with or interacted with each other. I think it's politically relevant. It's not just a sort of formal observation. I'm never in such moments trying to make a causal claim. Oh, this is what caused everything. You know, mm -hmm. so so is it inevitable that kneeling mean means what it meant when Caper Capernick does it? No, probably not. There's a contextual meaning, though. I mean, part of the meaning is that 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 in the United States you must stand for the national anthem. And yeah. going back to the Vietnam War, uh, refusing to stand really since the Vietnam War has signified political dissent to war or to national to the national project yeah. or to or to those two things as they relate to each other so that was an available and it was really during vietnam sitting and not kneeling but refusing to stand so in another political context it could be that refusing to kneel could be yes um, it's the arbitrary nature of the sign right yeah. yes but so the fact that signs are arbitrary doesn't mean they're infinitely elastic in particular contexts right no, it, it would have taken I don't even mean it's inconceivable that there was a way of not standing that would be read as supportive rather than hostile. But it's very easy in the context Kaepernick was in for taking a knee to be legible, to be intelligible to people as an expression, not simply of dissent, uh, but I suppose of defiance, dissent and defiance of, you know, the idea that you know it's an insane it's a sort of insane thing by the way that like because you throw a ball on a field somehow everybody should first stand and and sing about how great the nation is 
You know, I mean, yeah. that that's a practice that didn't always exist. It was instituted for particular nationalist reasons. And it's it wasn't very difficult for the defiance of that nationalist project in a moment of white supremacy, a, a, a complaint about white supremacy to be intelligible. You know, there, there, there's a, if we're thinking about images, uh, there's a question of what's the relationship between pragmatics, how are things used, and aesthetics, what is their form? And, and I think a lot about this with, say, photographs. And again, it seems to me you can't you can't, in a particular context, use any image in any way. Uh, um, but it's also not the truth that the form simply dictates the reception. I'll give you an example that's uh, another piece of the same book that this Plato is from. So, so in the United States, spectacle lynching, as it's called, right, was a brutal, long-running practice from the end of the Civil War, really until the 1950s. Thousands of especially Black and especially male, but secondarily Chicano, uh, Latino, occasionally Jewish, uh, occasionally female people were publicly tortured and executed in vast sort of, in, often in an almost festival setting. And one aspect of the sort of ritualization of that, uh, of that murderous practice was photography. And lynching, you couldn't move easily among a lynch mob without their thinking you have some affinity with or sympathy with what's going on. It would have been hazardous. Yeah. So lynching photographers often shot photographs from the point of view, as it were, of the lynch mob. And the resulting photographs were um, often made into postcards. Yeah. Which were sort of trophies of the event and circulated among white supremacists. So, so here's a case of a particular violent, uh, virulent point of view being encoded in a photograph. And yet, Black anti lynching activists end up taking those same photographs and using them in their organized campaign against lynching you know fighting for legislation to to regulate to 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 crack down on it and so forth right um and my claim would be that that's not simply so there's a story that says so the aesthetic form is not everything because the same picture gets used for diametrically opposed purposes yeah but my claim would be it's not quite either a case that meaning is use and you can make any picture mean anything because when those anti-lynching activists used lynching photographs to fight lynching the way they did it was to unpack and comment and verbalize or visually thematize what was going on in those pictures to reveal and describe the perspective so that for instance lynching photographs sometimes show white children gathering around curiously and happily around the body of a murdered black man hanging from a tree. Yeah. And the NAACP might reuse that picture with a commentary that says something like, what kind of people bring children to a murder? 
or don't look, and I believe I'm more or less going, don't look at the man, look at the crowd, mm -hmm. for instance, right? So, so I want to, I want to treat that as a kind of example about things that hold more broadly true about the relationship between the form, whether it's a kneel or the form of a picture and the political effect, which is there's plasticity, but there's also limits. And, and that often the, the political use has to invoke or refer to or somehow draw upon the form and it can't just ignore it, you know. Um, yeah, and I think there's the, another element is that what I get from that example is that uh, looking makes you complicit. It makes you complicit if you look at the lynching and uh, this has also been used in the past as a political tool to make people watch hangings or, or something like that because it makes you complicit. Um, but maybe um, I'm just speculating that I, I watched the George Floyd uh, video and I had to make myself watch it. Um, yes. Maybe one part of that. So watching something which you don't want to watch is maybe has also to do with the fact that watching it makes you complicit. Yes. And then now I have to deal with now I have to deal with that. I live in a world where just to explain the video. So the, the image is, is one thing and you see kneeling, which is a very powerful image. Uh, so kneeling, but he's kneeling and he's kneeling on a black person's neck and he's very white and that person is very black. Even if the image is, is kind of blurry, you that's what you see in the video. This goes on for what, nine minutes or something there's a crowd of people um there are three police officers and people are saying hey he's not breathing is he still breathing check his pulse at one point there's uh, a woman uh who says i'm a firefighter uh can you please check it and and the other officers even threaten with macing and everything like that so um it's maybe almost the opposite of the the lynching example where where someone is being uh, murdered um but the crowd is trying but it's so strange to to the visual what i said they cannot do anything but of course that's not true they could uh they, they were met with more people than the three uh officers they could walk up to them and overpower the officer something like that but there is something there mm -hmm. of course it would have consequences for them because they might be maced, they might be shot, they might be, um, there could be physical consequences, but there's something there where someone is being murdered and people are seeing that, but still they can't do anything, but this can't, that's very interesting to me because physically they can, but there's another sense in which they can't uh, prevent it. And then of course, you when you're watching really can't i mean you, 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 it, you, it happened you, already yeah it happened already right uh, uh and there are there are a couple of i think particularly tricky or, or challenging aspects of contemporary visual culture that come out of your story and the way you unpack it 
you know, in terms of complicity. You know, one is, I mean, there is a whole discourse about the circulation of sort of black death images. Yeah. And, 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 and whether the circuit of transmission should be refused or interrupted because of the reenactment or the restaging of trauma. Uh, and, 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 and everybody, you know, you said, you had, you said, I believe I had to make myself watch it. I mean, you why would I would, why would I want to watch, watch that? I, I already know what happens. Yes. Uh, it's like the, I can read the back of the Republic, so I already know what happens. Why would I have to read the Republic? Because I already know the consequences. But still, there's and, there's a value in. I think there was a value for me in watching it, even though I had to make myself. So so, and that raises the question of. different kinds of complicity and what can be done with compl complicity. I I'm certainly interested in visual artists who work with complicity. I mean, my example I have returned to on and off for a very long time is Kara Walker, who uh, you know, contemporary American conceptual artist, um, black woman who stages scenes that often I'm not sure this is quite the right way to put it, but it's the way that critics tend to use, you know, involve racial sort of intertwining of race and stereotypical intertwining of race and sex, where violence, race, pornography meet. And various visual strategies that she uses involve confronting people who look at these with questions about their own complicity in the fantasies being enacted, mm -hmm. right? And that can do really politically interesting work. You know, if it can be, it, it can incite discomfort. It can incite, it can cite, you know, reflections or sort of meta reflections on how one sees, but it can also that's too sort of bloodless or abstract. It can, it can in, incite vi visceral feelings of discomfort that can be generative. You know, they don't necessarily cause change or reform, but they provide they provide something one can work with. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Ernst von Alpha, who you who you know, uh, we discussed this in the episode. He did an, a book and a uh, exhibition on shame, and kind of the kind of the healing. Uh, maybe healing is not the right, word, but one of the ways is that. So, well, we're both white, and um, there's a kind of responsibility that comes to that living in a world where. Like, like I said, what I experienced is like, even if I'm not American, I live in a world where this happens and where right. this is not, not just this happens, but this happens uh, and is allowed to happen by representatives of the government and people who want to stop it, they cannot stop it. Um, and that there, I've, I don't know too much about, but the, 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 the idea that you need to go through something through a feeling of shame, or it could be another feeling, it could be a feeling of anger, it could be something like that. And that that is necessary. We can't just um, go to the surface of the get out of the cave. We have we have to have this painful journey uh, being dragged there in order to experience something. 
So um, what I thought of listening to you was an aspect of the Republic that we haven't talked about quite directly, which is that three-part model of the soul that Socrates is working with. Yeah. And, and the argument uh, against sensation, against visuality, is that it summons the lowest part of the soul, the part tied to, tied to desire. And, and, that, and that a well-ordered soul is ruled by reason, just as a well-ordered polity is ruled by the reasonable, i.e. philosophers. Um, and yet, the, 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 what you were just saying, you know, talking about shame and the like, uh, and as a side note, shame is actually the middle part of the soul in Plato, but is, is what you were talking about is the, the powerful productive work that visceral response can do in politics. And it seems to me that a, a plausible democratic politics, a plausible politics in pursuit of justice doesn't work by simply transcending, <laughs> you know, uh, the visceral or or, or desire, uh, uh, and, and entering some sphere of pure dispassion, and and images hit us in that really visceral way, but but images like the George Floyd image, the the Derek Chauvin on George Floyd's neck, they remind us that images can condense and reveal really fundamental things about a political regime and by stirring both that recognition and visceral response lead us to rise up in the pursuit of justice um i mean i think i think that story makes the point about the the ways in which you know images that even you know appalling images horrified images images that we wish weren't there because we, we would wish that what happened didn't happen, can mobilize us to fight the injustices or the forms of violence that they depict. And I wanna say that the Republic, the official story, the back of the book story uh, of the Republic uh, doesn't leave space for that, but recognizing how the Republic entwines the political and the visual and recognizing the performative elements of the text and so forth, I think actually helps us think about and understand that, that it is the case that those feelings you described could be part of a desirable politics and, and a desirable politics engaged in part by visual encounters. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking now how Thinking a little bit about the Republic, how uh, we don't know this for sure, but it's probably the, the fact that uh, Socrates was put to death, played a role in uh, Plato becoming a, a philosopher. Um, so this was kind of a violent start, political start. Uh, the trial of Socrates was was right. a political statement at the time. And I what, just for people who don't know the story, the the... The part I love about it is that he was put to to uh, that, and he there was a um, he was allowed to respond, and 
they asked him, what, what do you think your punishment should be for corrupting the youth and, and other things? And he said something like, well, I think um, uh, someone should cook me a meal for the rest of my life. Three meals at the place where the Olympic heroes go. <laughs> and take care of me and I don't have to work because I did, uh, you know, I did a very good thing for, for you people. Um, so now I'm thinking about, I don't know if you know this story about uh, Spinoza, the part uh, uh, Dutch um, uh, philosopher who witnessed a lynching as well. Two Dutch politicians were lynched and this was also the start of uh, Spinoza's uh, I did not know that. Right to ethics because he was thinking about actually what I said before a little bit like this this kind of society I live in this kind of society in which this can happen I think he was also thinking about religion and how people would respond to religion and how this could result in such violence and this was for him to start to think of um, I don't want to call it a story, but uh, a philosophy. So I was thinking about this could also be the start, the, the violent start of thinking what, what in the other episodes, what Bernard Stiegler says, what the job is a philosopher is to think, to imagine an alternative. And an alternative to what? To the situation that we're in now. And what the situation we're in now is a political situation. It's the way we organize uh, society and um, yeah, just some thoughts that came up. Uh, <laughs> you know, in a society like the one I live in here in the US on a sort of superficial short-term level uh it's not too hard to imagine the at least incrementally but nonetheless substantially better i.e more social democracy <laughs> uh various kinds of racial acknowledgement and reparation, what sometimes uh, in, a, in, in American political discussion called a, a third reconstruction, like a, a, a sort of national racial reckoning with a settler colonial uh, white supremacist society and a reimagining or a rebuilding of its institutions in ways that repair and bring justice. Uh, practically, politically uh, getting there, is extraordinarily daunting. There was a brief moment in 2020, in the summer of 2020, in that moment of when we were all going to protests, when it seemed like maybe the first instances at the level of policing, et cetera, might be at hand. In retrospect, that that looks naive or or overly hopeful. But so difficult, strategically difficult, tactically, not very hard conceptually to think about, but then we zoom out and think about global injustice and and think about climate apocalypse, which I believe you've had some engagement with in this podcast. And there, I want to say, um, there I want to say. I mean, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's the task of a philosopher to come down to cut to come down from the forms and hand the world the vision of that of that world 
you know, I guess I, I guess I reject that 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 model, but just thinking our way to this is a banal observation because it's one from a position of uh, a sense of being overwhelmed that I think I share with most people on the planet. Yeah. Uh, 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 thinking our way to to a post-carbon-based, post-exploitative, <laughs> uh, sustainable global future. That is no, even conceptually, that's not, you know, even imaginatively, that's not an easy. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. then you say thinking your way, but that's the part in the cave, the what what Socrates says in the cave is that it's not just a matter of turning your head, but you have to turn, turn your whole body, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I'm thinking about this. Um, you know, we still have this idea partly indebted to Platonism, and we could maybe say that Plato was not a Platonist, but <laughs> that uh, reason and rationality and thinking will get us out of it. But you point to the imagining, the imagination, the images, uh, which is not, I mean, let's not get into the the images and thinking and that's all complex but um um so there uh, uh stigler calls it dreaming and and dreaming is in part dependent on on the political and technical conditions that that we're in uh, yeah you know yeah i i i really like your point and i i i take it i i, I might retract my 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 thinking as a too narrow a word um i I think this is this doesn't really touch on the visual other than the way in which we conjure up images in our mind as we read. But I sometimes think, you know, the most interesting recent work of political theory is is uh, the novel uh, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, which uh, I think it might be better political theory than a novel and sort of narrow in sort of modernist literary terms or something like that, but which is a, an imagining of climate, of, of collapse and reconstruction and, 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 and a, you know, a fictional story with lots of characters and lots of points of view and lots of literary and discursive modes telling the story about how sort of significant steps to a kind of post-capitalist, post-carbon-based future get taken. Mm -hmm. It's massively fat. Uh, he'd be a great podcast guest, but but <laughs> but 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 if he if he did the whole novel, you'd have to have a seven hour episode. That's uh, okay. Uh, I but, don't have uh, a time limit. <laughs> but 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 it's because you know I mean it makes things easy. It's a story. Everything would really be harder, but it does it lets you imagine, it lets you picture, it lets you feel some things about a, about a post, post-capitalist, post-carbon life, a life, a, a life that begins in, 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 in climate catastrophe, but contains the damage by, by, by moving toward a world that can, mm. can, can be sustained. And, and, and it's, it, it's not, that it's not just a problem of knowledge, as you say, I, I think is is underscored in uh, I think it's Augustine who says, you know, something like, Lord, Lord, let me cease to sin, just not yet. And I think that I think that's the 
that's the posture that some of us in the professional classes in the rich North Atlantic nations are in. You know, we know that the form of life in which we participate is not sustainable. Yeah. Right? Could we could we could we defer really? Could we defer acting on that for a little while longer to 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 take advantage of all the pleasures of of the mode of life? Is 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 a is a sentiment or an experience? I th I, I would guess many of your listeners have. I would I would plead guilty to that certainly. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, maybe that's a, it's a good moment to. Uh, I'm just thinking about this other moment in the Republic that you uh, use in that you analyze in your paper, um, and thinking about what we can do in relation to the images that we're being shown. Of course, there's a you know the war a war going on in Ukraine, and there are many things. And maybe if people listen to this in ten years, there will be other things going on. Um, and how we can use some reading practices to, yeah, to, to uh, as you say, uh, a story I once, uh, that, that's what uh, Socrates says, right, in the Republic, a story I once heard, which I think can guide us here. Maybe I just read the fragment. It's not so long. Sure. Um, so this is what Socrates uh, says in the Republic. Leontius, the son of Aglion, was on his way up to town from Piraeus. As he was walking from, uh, as he was walking below the north wall on the outside, he saw the public executioner with some dead bodies lying beside him. He wanted to look at the bodies, but at the same time he felt disgust and held himself back. For a time he struggled and covered his eyes. Then desire got the better of him. He rushed over to where the bodies were and forced his eyes wide open, saying, "There you are! Curse you! Have a really good look." Isn't it a lovely sight? So that scene he saw was a calculated, politically structured display of execution. And the story is about someone's sort of ambivalence and sort of uncontrolled response to that display. And there are a lot of things one could say about that in the text, but in terms of your point about the, you know, the images were shown and all of that, uh, um, we might want to be critical of displays that, you know, to, to use your term from some minutes ago, displays that invite our complicity in violence. Um, you know, in this case, in execution. And, you know, some readings, highly contested matter would, some readings would have this be, Daniel Allen most obviously would, would have this be part of a, a critique of capital punishment that she finds in Plato. Um, uh, I'm a little agnostic about whether that critique is there, but I believe a critique should be there. We, 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 you know, we should not want to be, well, I don't think we should be wanting to execute dead bodies. I don't, I mean, to execute criminals. I don't think we should be wanting to put them on display. And I don't think we should want to be participants in a regime that incites our rage and anger uh, 
by by put by by putting those killed in our name on display. So I think it's a good example of uh, a, a much more consequential practice, maybe than Black Peter. You know, of it's it's why we want to resist certain visual practices. You know, although your example of the Ukraine is a reminder that even while modes of representing, say, the war dead can themselves be dehumanizing or violating or pose ethical or political problems to us, how necessary that reportage can be. One of the things that has most struck me of kind of anything I've read in the news in the past six weeks has been the line of reporting on the war where ethnically Russian Ukrainians who have family members in Russia report calling their relatives and saying, you know, we're fleeing or we're in the bomb shelter or our city is being turned into rubble. And the family members say, nonsense, don't be hysterical. What are you yeah. talking about? There is no war, right? I mean, and that's a level of disavowal that is not simply caused by, but is enabled by the media environment that 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 most residents of Russia find themselves in, yeah. where, where they're not being they they are not being saturated with pictures uh, of of the consequences of of that war. I don't think it's I don't think that's the whole of it, but it. it there's a reason why. Uh, there's a reason why you can't find images of the war on Russian television, right? Yeah. There's also um, we speak about this in the other episode about racism. That it's on the surface level, it's heartwarming the way in in the Netherlands and other countries people are responding to the war uh, and refugees and opening their houses and everything. But I can't shake the first comments when they were saying, people were saying they uh, it's a civilized country. Yes. They look just like us. Yes. They have uh, blonde hair and, and blue eyes. And and uh, Ukrainians that have the bad luck that they have a different skin tone are having trouble getting out of the country. Yes. Um, and almost maybe this is too cynical that someone opening their home to Ukrainians would get a black person maybe would even feel duped um okay that's a bit of a cynical comment but uh well i'm not sure I, I leave it. <laughs> you may you may judge the mood of your country better than i but certain sure i mean it's you know much commented upon but justly so the weird yeah. racialized aspects of the, the the ease and the pervasiveness of recognition of the horrors of this particular refugee situation compared yeah. to others is, deserves the condemnation it's gotten certainly, you know. Um, yeah, and I, I think what, what we've talked about in this episode can, uh, you quote Judith Butler so, somewhere, um, maybe I just look up the quote. Uh, it's a quote from Judith Butler, to learn to see the frame that binds us to what we see. So it's kind of, what we're speaking about could help us seeing the images through which we're seeing or, or something like that. So you see an image and you're 
maybe the next image you see, you can start to analyze this image, take it apart, look at it from different ways. Uh, uh, are there other things that, that, that as a specialist in visual politics, you would say, this is what, what you can do when you, when you watch the news or when, um, when you see images of violence, is there something more active that, that we can do? Well, I mean, let's go to the, there are two, there are two things one can do and one applies to more of us than the other does. Um, well, let's start with to learn that quote. I love that quote from Butler and, and to, to, to learn to see the frame that binds us uh, is no small thing. Yeah. In so far as it can facilitate unbinding us. Right. That, that's what that story, that's the story you read, the, the passage with the, the dead bodies and Leontius in, in the Republic. It's a it's about a moment of partial unbinding, or you know, and it and I think it can can could can provoke in attentive readers uh, an opportunity for unbinding. And that's that's I don't think that's a small thing. But then you say, well, what else? And and the two things that occur to me, uh, you know, one for maybe a smaller mi minority of us uh, who are more gifted than the rest of us is the making of different kinds of images, right? I mean, that's why I said like to go back to your comment on complicity, you know, artists whose work produces and thematizes complicity in uncomfortable ways are, are trying to advance that process, right? Of seeing differently. That 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 I think is a significant a significant activity, although you know like I can't do it the way Carol Walker does, right? That's a but but the other thing is if we go back to the to the George Floyd pictures, people saw. I mean, look, the George Floyd pictures told a lot of people things they knew all too well. Certainly, anybody who had been on the receiving end of police violence knew that. Certainly plenty of, after, after years of highly publicized police killings, certainly lots of white people of certain political sensibilities knew more or less what the pictures and the video can tell us. But there are different ways and levels of knowing. And somehow at that moment, on top of all the things that have been happening, encountering those images move people into action. So that's the other thing we could all do. Like, like yeah. millions of us took to the streets, right? With 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 with, with what long-term effect? I, I'm 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 more um, pessimistic and more skeptical uh, than I allowed myself to be at the apex of protest, but I also believe that the, the ripple effects of protests, the temporality of that is not so easy to know. You know, can we, can we take the measure? Uh, uh, what's the line that, that I think, it, I think it's false. I think this is made up, but it, that's attributed to Chow and Lai, you know, you know, what's your verdict on the French revolution? It's too early to tell. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, I think with these protests, do, do we really know? The consequence, for better or worse, do we know the consequences? I, I, I am not sure, but 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 that is the that is the other thing, obviously, right? I mean, not a 
not a, a, a theoretical or a profound observation, but but maybe banal, but we can act. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of something uh, Adorno says in Negative Dialectics about, um, because images are also kind of, can be kind of an ideal. And he speaks about Paris and that Paris has this image of, uh, in modern days, we would say the city of romance. But then, so then you go to uh, Paris because you want to have a romantic weekend because, you know, that's what happens there. But then you get there and it's like the streets are dirty and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, you, your wallet gets stolen and it's horrible. But then you, I'm just kind of misreading Adorno, but then he would say, yeah, but then you tell yourself now I'm too close to the image to, uh, to see it. But so the image is, let's say, maybe false in a way, but it does get you moving and uh, yeah. Uh, but but maybe the yeah the trick is that you you have to be aware that that the image is what's got you moving but it's not necessarily something that you should continue to that you don't expect that you will come there and then you will have the image so we could imagine a future i don't know from beyond climate change but then we also have to let go of that image uh, as soon as we get moving maybe mm-hmm I mean, and that is the, that's the part of Hannah Arendt's critique, even though I think it's actually not a good reading of Plato, that I think is a profound commentary on politics, which is acting in the world is something different and more complicated than instantiating an image. In fact, I listened to your last podcast and it was very illuminating and smart and interesting, but one moment I found myself disagreeing with the speaker, with your guest, was he said something to the effect that, you know, in order to do it, we have to imagine it first. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, not always. I mean, I mean, we, you and I have just talked for some minutes enthusiastically about the transfigurative or transforming or potentially mobilizing quality of acts of imagination. And I'm not taking that back now, but I want to say with Arendt actually, that action can be, as she puts it, self-surprising. Sometimes you get up in the middle of a rally and you say something you didn't know you were gonna say. You know, the situation draws out of you. It's not premeditated, it's not idea implementation it's an encounter that makes possible something you didn't know was possible before it happened i think that's part of political struggle too yeah and then you have to make sense of it afterwards right and then a big and then a big part of a big part of politics is who is 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 the story that gets told is the sense making in the form yeah, of a story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who gets to tell the story and what what shape does the story have? You know? Yeah, yeah. This is getting into a whole other trend, but this I mean, I'm, this is what really fascinates me. This idea of, um, okay, let's say needing an image to to get you moving, but also that the the what happens when you encounter well it could be an image but it also could also be just a different kind of experience experience that doesn't fit into 
the status quo or the order or the world, the way the world, the, the way you see the world, like Heidegger wrote about this, but Adorno as well. And what happens? And and it can happen that you uh, interpret it in such a way that you make it fit, <laughs> and that and it helps if you have an ideology that you can make whatever comes at you, you can make it fit into that ideology, so it will never be challenged. Uh, or you could, or you can say it's not, uh, it's irrelevant. So it's only, you know, it's only the bad apples or something like that. But it can also be that it's like the how the, there's this fairy tale of the the princess and the pea. Is that how you say it in English yes. as well? Yeah. yeah. So she wants to sleep, but there's a pea, and no matter how many mattresses she piles on top of it, it will still be there. And and the only way you can deal with it is to do something. Um, and you have this Danish beer commercial that says, "Do something, even if in it, if it's wrong." So you have oh. to you have to do something <laughs> uh, without thinking about what am I going to do? And uh, yeah, so then imagine I'm just kind of mulling over your point that yeah, maybe maybe it's even the case that imagination can get in the way. Um, that's not what you were saying, but that's what I'm thinking now. If you think of if we go all the way back to just. I said I was going to say Justice Brown. We call in the United States if you say justice, that means you're on the Supreme Court. Otherwise, you're a judge. She's judge right now, but she's about to be justice. So let's say Justice Brown. Very interesting connection to the Republic, which yeah, is yeah, according yeah. to the backside about justice, right? So okay, it is indeed. If you go back to that question, you know, what's your definition of woman, and and you think about what what the anxiety and the hostility, and the and the attempted trap that lay behind that question, which was that some people have come to occupy the category of women as the, the, the category has been reconfigured in ways that the questioner deeply disliked. Um, there were profound acts of imagination in that resignification or reworking of the category, but there were probably also lots of instances of people kind of incrementally or collectively and spontaneously doing things they hadn't planned or envisioned beforehand that that made that refiguring possible. Um, we haven't talked at all about uh, um, one of my current interests, which is images made by machines for other machines, which, which, which would undercut many of the things we say, but that would have to be a whole other episode uh, because we're going on for a long time. So let's say uh, the, 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 the paper that we discussed is going to be the first chapter of a, a book that you finished it or is it? Uh, no, is it uh, uh, next sabbatical, which comes up in a year. I'll okay. Let's, let's talk when your, when your book comes out and uh, okay. we'll speak about that. Okay. Um, Sounds good to me. It's yeah. yeah, me too. Thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot and uh, I'll have to think about some things. And this, that's why I'm doing this podcast. You know, I can re-listen to the conversation and, uh, and it's great that other people listen to it as well. <laughs> uh -huh. But uh, even if no one would listen to it, uh, it would be a great way to speak to interesting people. And <laughs> uh -huh. Well, uh, I, I, I very much appreciate you having me. And thank you for listening. You can find links to Mark's work in the description. Let me just correct one thing I said. The way I spoke about the philosopher Spinoza witnessing the lynching of Johann de Witt, and the way I connected it to Socrates' death, 
could make it seem that this is how Spinoza got into philosophy. But that's not quite right. The reality is more complex. It did impact his life and work in a really major way, but at that time he was already writing the ethics. I'll get into this in more detail in a later episode. For now, thanks for listening, and if you want to support me, go to livefromplatoscave.com for ways to do this.